Hello and welcome to Phil's Breakfast Metal episode 89. The idea for this episode was suggested to me by uh, listener Richard of the band Bloodrust. And the, the kind of concept is covering bands who transitioned between two sounds really successfully. So, as you're probably aware, like a lot of death metal bands in the 90s flirted with, like, turning into grunge bands and stuff like that. And wasn't always the, like, the kind of chasing the commercial trend, wasn't always the most successful sort of transition in sounds. With this episode, I want to cover a few where a band has gone, particularly from, like, a heavier sound to a lighter sound, when it's actually been sort of thoroughly embraced by their audience and often keeping a lot of the kind of experimental and interesting edge their uh, early material had, but, like, changing direction to something something equally interesting to what they were doing before. Particularly bands where the sound they sort of transition to is something they continue doing for years. Like, one I won't be covering that would be a good example of this is, like, amorphous move from their earlier, heavier stuff to their sort of later, more kind of progressive rock-influenced sound. So, like, while choosing bands from this, there's a load of great examples I won't go into because I've already covered their stuff at length on the podcast before. Um, and another one I'm going to skip just because, while an obvious example of this there is just too much there and they do it too often is uh Ulva with um <laughs> because they change like sound every couple of albums but yeah their move from black metal into that kind of more um ambient electronic stuff um was a pretty spectacular one but again yeah that's probably for another time Ulva realistically could have a whole podcast to themselves another one that I won't do is uh Blues of Snord are another very good example of this. But they never really transition sound Blues of Snord. They just do something very different album to album. It, it's never so much a transition. It just seems Vince Val will just put out different ideas every so often. So I'm particularly looking at bands where the, the transition was massive. Say you look at like uh, something like Opeth's move between like Watershed and Heritage. Something like that. But trying to focus on ones that um, are kind of more universally loved for that change. Obviously, this will get really controversial. I think a lot of listeners will probably hate some of the albums, particularly the the second parts of this. But bear with me and see if I can, can give decent defences of any of these. So, the one I want to start on, and these ones don't... This doesn't quite fit the brief, because actually... Um, the transition didn't like really turn into a lasting movement for them. But I think had things gone a bit differently, maybe it could have. So the fan I want to cover is Celtic Frost. Now, obviously, most of you will be hugely familiar with their earlier material. Like, they are just one of the, the progenitors of extreme metal, like, forming in as early as 1984, which is just still mind-blowing looking back and seeing their debut EP, Morbid Tales, and thinking it's, you know, it's only a year behind Kill 'Em All. It's only just after Epicus, Doomicus, Metallicus, a band finding a sound that incredibly heavy, you know, combining their bit of, like, Venom influence with some new wave British heavy metal and the heavier end of a lot of the 70s music. Um, they were just creating something absolutely incredible for the time, which really has aged quite well. Like, their, their previous project, Hellhammer, obviously was quite sloppy by comparison but once things got a bit tightened up um for those first two eps morbid tales and emperor's return we get some absolutely amazing music never that technically complex but they did get very good at playing the stuff uh, like playing their songs and the these recordings to me sound incredibly tight and the thing i think um tom g warrior had down so early on was getting this 
absolutely massive guitar sound like it just gets better and better through those couple of early releases like into the point of their proper debut album 1985 to mega on which just has this brilliantly massive guitar tone and again like i think tom g warrior is always going to be the remembered member of the band because one he's obviously still doing stuff um but two, like, the guitar tone and his voice are always, like, the big standouts of those classic tracks. Like, you know, Circle of Tyrant, Dethroned Emperor. When we get to the album To Megaferion, there is some hints of stuff they would um, sort of incorporate more in the future. Like, there is a couple of uh, guests credited. Like, there's a French horn player on three of the tracks. Uh, also a female operatic singer on three of the tracks, adding, like interesting backing vocal textures which now neither of those things sound like totally bizarre but on an album this extreme in 1985 that must have been incredibly weird like though those kind of choices are um really interesting it shows how much um the band were always interested in pushing the boundaries as well we have like an incredible cover art for it, a piece by um by H.R. Geiger, I think it's called Satan I or Satan One. Um, the record label have slightly ruined by putting a Celtic Frost logo over it, which, as you'll see in later years of Triptychon, Geiger didn't allow that to happen again. Um, and possibly why there wasn't Geiger covers for uh, the next few of the Celtic Frost releases. Realistically, though, obviously, talking about Celtic Frost, we all know how incredibly important that band were without them so much of extreme metal wouldn't look how it looks like tom g warrior set out some amazing um amazing ideas in terms of that kind of approach to guitar playing uh, and vocals not to like undersell the the kind of importance of the rest of the band as well and then there was a huge amount of work done by the band as well to kind of start codifying that aesthetic of extreme metal like they took some of that like really over-the-top Venom look and kind of change it to be their own thing, like, you know, adding in the makeup and so on, you know, probably a, a major precursor to where the Norwegian black metal scene would go with this. I don't want to go on about these first uh, few releases too much because that's not really the period in their career I want to talk about. That would probably require a lot longer episode as well. Um, what I want to talk about is the transition that came in. So after this, like, uh, they toured uh, to Megaferion like absolutely really intensely got a lot of success like they they actually were to an extent despite being you know one of the most extreme bands in the world at the time um they definitely had some commercial appeal and then the transition came the thing that in many ways sort of ruined the band for a time is they went into a studio to record their second full length in 1987 into the pandemonium and try to do something really different and original with it. So the lineup for this release is obviously Tom G. Warrior um, on vocals and guitar, Martin Eric Ayne, who sort of has a long time on and off again relationship with the band. He's on most of their, their important releases, although um, only on a few tracks to Megatherion. Um, like his rejoined as a, as a full sort of member of the band, and we have the drummer from that previous album, Mark St. Reed, who I think is credited previously as being a jazz drummer in New York ahead of um ahead of his time with um with Celtic Frost. I think most would see this lineup as like the absolute uh, classic lineup of the band. 
And they must have gone into studio with some incredible ambition for this one. So it's put out again on Noise Records, who I believe put out their last one with a lot of, like, kind of label speculation and scrutiny on what they were doing. And the band just have gone absolutely wild with it. So 10-track release that opens with a cover of a like a cover song of a kind of quite poppy original they, they kind of frost make it their own but it's a wall of voodoo cover of the song mexican radio which sort of has the trademark um celtic frost guitar tone the the opening vocals of the album is tom g warriors ooh like that is the first thing we hear but it is this quite catchy kind of pop structure and obviously a cover as well like opening an album with a cover is a is a kind of bizarre choice. And the bizarre choices just keep coming throughout the album. We have moments where there is um, like a load of orchestration. So there's um, guest violin, like a whole guest string section, multiple guest vocalists throughout the album. And so those kind of hints we were getting from the previous one get just turned up to 11 on this. The amount of sort of classical influence um, added on this album is huge. But song to song it depends where you are and the album so with track two uh mesmerized we get sort of something that more or less represents a classic celtic frost song but the the kind of chorus and refrain of it is far more kind of miserable and uh stripped back and we have a returning uh vocalist from the previous album album claudia maria mockeray adding some backing vocals to this track and really emphasising those kind of, um, the kind of melancholy of that chorus. Something that will sort of appear a lot more in later Celtic Frost and Triptych and stuff. There's, I mean, this this is somewhat reminiscent, despite, you know, the many years difference in what you can do with a guitar between this and, say, Monotheist or any of the later stuff. But there's, there's, there's some genesis of the bleakness they would sort of imbue into their music. Then we get um, In a Sanctum, which is probably the most straight-up, old-school Celtic Frost song on the album. So there's still certainly nods to that, which is really um, heavily led by Martin Eric Haynes' incredible bass playing on it. Um, his bass shines from this album like really well. It's got a fantastic tone to it. And I think Celtic Frost sort of have that thing of being a one-guitar band. Like A lot of their work, they, they do a good job of not totally drowning the bass, and this album, I think, is a particular standout for that. Then we get the second real oddity of the album with uh, Tristesse de la Lune, which is like a complete classical interlude, like where that that aforementioned string section appear, complete with a load of backing um, backing female singers. Uh, one of which I believe I believe is on this track is uh, Manuel Mon of the Villes, a gothic band from Switzerland who were kind of popular at the time. So you can see like pulling in people from all over the place this. so we've got all the sort of classical but we've got some like goth elements added over the top for this then we get the kind of the really epic um center point of the album babylon fell and caress into oblivion which are these two kind of related pieces um, about the kind of rise and fall of babylon apparently and they they have this um this really good kind of energy to them and they they just feel like the slight evolution of the older celtic frost sound like slightly more progressive song structures like more varying atmosphere particularly uh caressing to oblivion um has this very long sort of intro to it so so far other than opening with the cover like if we 
we write off like the one interlude. It's not totally weird, but then it then it just falls off a cliff into the total unexpected. Um, a moment for me that I don't think works at all, but certainly interesting is uh, one in their pride, which is this, this like weird industrial metal track that wouldn't sound out of place in kind of like kind of maybe a more stripped back version of like like that kind of. Not early, but, you know, first point with a really successful ministry. Like, that kind of, like, pounding program drums over this, like, with loads of, like, repeated samples. Personally, it just pisses me the hell off. Like, I, I skip this track on this album every time. But, um... But it certainly shows the, like, ambition. Like, okay, so we've got classical, but now we've got industrial as well. Like, these two polar opposites of, like... One com one song with completely synthesized instruments and another song with instruments with no effects on them at all. It's very strange. And then then we have like the catchy kind of obvious single of the album, "I Won't Dance," uh, brackets at the Elders Orient, which has this really um, engaging chorus, um, and it's just like a very memorable track, but extremely poppy from from Celtic Frost, like, this one's very much in the vein of that cover they opened the album with. And then Rexiray Requiem is where we properly see all the guest musicians, the string section, all the backing vocalists come in, and it's this amazing epic, which I think would be a nod to their future sound, you're thinking of the, the triptychs that close Monotheist. So there's all these amazing ideas in it, um... And it's it's just a shame, like as I say, like the idea with this this episode is to cover bands who really successfully had a change that sort of led them forward. Um, but the problem was with Into the Pandemonium, Celtic Frost were kind of getting big, and their their label was trying to push and market them. Uh, again, this is me reading a few kind of things. Like um, I've recently got the big vinyl reissue, so I'm I'm taking this from Tom G Warrior's uh, interviews, but. This seems to be relatively fair. Like, the label was really trying to push them, and they were not happy with this. Apparently, there was... it. Like, they were having... They had studio executive people coming in to the studio recording and having a go at them saying, why don't you make more straightforward music like Exodus or Slayer in front of all these classical musicians they had in the room. But, like, amazingly... Celtic Frost stuck to the guns and put out the album they really wanted to do. This is the band were, you know, doggedly determined to do this like very experimental out there album and they put together something pretty incredible if in some ways like kind of messy and a touch schizophrenic but it was commercial suicide for them. Um like the the album got quite critically panned. It didn't sell that well and uh what what resulted uh was tom kicking out the entire lineup or at least falling out with them and then going on to try and make a like successful like i, I, I hate to kind of use it but the next year he puts out an album that is it is a sellout album cold lake like one of the most universally hated albums in all of metal history and and I think I think a lot of this is due to the studio being that in in his ear or in the band's ear throughout the process that they thought Cole Lake was the right step to take. Like it was their their kind of you know 
clawing back some popularity in that and and he you know Tom has obviously spoken about it at length since like he absolutely hates the album and thinks it was a complete mistake to have ever done uh, Cole Lake that is not not Into the Pandemonium whereas Into the Pandemonium stands as this fantastically odd experimental idea and again like much of us saying like the odd ideas in To Make a Therion Into the Pandemonium has these bizarre ideas in 1987 again this is you know this is way before like the the death metal explosion or like way before black metal was like getting anywhere like 1987 black metal wasn't even really a thing outside the kind of very loosely defined first wave like none of what we we sort of typify as it and ideas from this will appear in so many different bands like this is pretty kind of symphonic uh, power metal kind of stuff symphonic kind of epic stuff like that all uh, the way like some black metal gets quite symphonic i am sure elements of this album had influence on that and it really showed like the extent of what you could do with extreme metal in some of those more like more epic tracks like uh, babylon fell or or rex array like are really pushing the boundaries maybe stuff like mexican radio and uh, i won't dance are slightly odd choices I guess they maybe didn't endure quite as much, but it's it's that level of experimentation, that, that willingness to do something odd and out there, I, I find absolutely incredible. Uh, and there's so much else to like about this album. The the fantastic cover, um, which is, is like a tiny corner of um, Bosch's Garden of Delights. So if you're not aware of Bosch, he fantastically weird painter like it was employed by the church but makes the most satanic looking paintings not too much is known about like i don't think he even named the paintings himself but yeah um <laughs> this this particular triptych i've got like a massive version up in my hallway um because I, I think it's beautiful but the the cover of this is a tiny corner uh, like a tiny dark hellish corner of the third panel and it, it, it took me years of like um looking at that picture to notice oh yeah that's the celtic frost cover up there because it's such an innocuous part of it absolutely beautiful and the album also comes with like an amazing inlay art and all credit to the band on this they put in absolutely incredible performances i know sort of i very much credit tom warrior with a lot of this because he sort of the f he very much becomes the face of the band going forward because triptychon felt like such a kind of continuation of the band but martin eric ain who sadly passed away in 2017 um his bass playing on this is spectacular. And actually, uh, both him and drummer Reed St. Mark uh, add a load of backing vocals to this. Like, previously, it's just been Tom Warrior, like, fronting it in terms of the voice. But with this, the rest of the band are doing backing vocals and, obviously, that whole host of uh, guest musicians. So, if, if you've missed this one of theirs, because not unreasonable with uh, Celtic Frost to just know that early kind of first couple of releases because they are so legendary and so important i think into the pandemonium actually is a massive like influential milestone in terms of their sound but i think it's one of those where the influence is probably a bit more deep rather than broad whereas our early stuff definitely inspired a lot of people to pick up the guitar and stop playing heavy music i think into the pandemonium inspired quite a few bands to start including slightly left-field ideas into their sound. And stuff like that, I think, it has a major part to play in why metal is such an enduring genre. If we'd been stuck with the early Celtic Frost formula and nothing else forever, the genre got stale. I don't think it would be what we see today. And 
and I love that this band were able to influence sort of both waves of that and then to sort of create a new thing with uh, with Monotheus. It's a shame this, this bombed at the time because it would have been really nice to see them try another couple of releases in this kind of vein or expanding on the ideas here. But as I say, some of those ideas do come back in their later material. So this leads me into a little plug I want to do. A lot of the notes I've been using for this episode uh, are from the lovely like 2018 reissue vinyl of Into the Pandemonium, which comes with a huge sort of book featuring sort of interviews and additional notes. And I picked this up from our newly opened uh, record store in Bristol, Black City Records. Now, I know a lot of you listeners are international, so this won't be of much interest to you, but if you ever are in Bristol, there is an amazing thing you can now do. We have the Metal Pub, the Griffin, and about 100 metres down the road, we now have our dedicated heavy metal record store, which I think must be one of the first in the UK. I know there's, um, I think it's Crypt of the Wizard in London, but this guy has, like put in the most effort to make this lovely space just dedicated to piles of the coolest like weird obscure metal like i was able to go in there pick up a vinyl of um size debut uh demos and ep which would have been fantastic for that episode but you know uh <laughs> didn't quite get that one in time i think it's an incredible thing for the local scene to have a space like this where you know they, they can stock sort of plenty of old classic vinyl but new releases and stuff by local artists as well like it's just a really cool thing to support the scene so i'm so happy this exists and if you are ever in bristol go and check it out because the the selection of, of releases is amazing considering it's not the biggest space in the world i you know there, there was queues outside so i only got to browse for about 20 minutes but in that time, I could have, yeah, could have spent so much more, and I'm sure there's whole corners of the shop I didn't, I didn't search thoroughly in that time. It's definitely somewhere I'm going to be popping back regularly to. The place seems like a real, like, labour of love, and I think it's such an amazing thing for the scene. I mean, even going to the point of putting, like, a little, a little kind of mini zine about the Bristol metal scene into each bag when people are shopping there. It's a really incredible place, and I, I, you know, Wish them all the success with it. And as I say, if you are ever in Bristol, make sure you go check out Black City Records because, you know, as a dedicated metal fan, like, there is no way you won't want to buy a lot in this place. It's really cool.
So the next band I want to get into with this are Therion, who um, is kind of almost forgotten now, sort of somewhat a footnote to their sort of latest success is Therion were right there in the midst of the the massive death metal boom in Sweden. Their, their first proper album of darkness um, came out in 1991, so incredibly contemporary to a lot of um, what was going on at the time. Um, the band's always been led by the incredibly ambitious uh, multi-instrumentalist uh, Christopher Johnson, who um, has, like he's always sort of led the band through multiple kind of lineup changes, playing many different instruments in it, and also was quite active in a lot of other stuff at the time. So for their early releases, you know, of Darkness, the Time Shall Tell EP before that, even... Uh, uh, beyond Sanctorum, uh, they're quite a straight-ahead kind of what you'd expect from a kind of Swedish death metal band at that time. For me, I've never been so into their first album. It's it's cool, but it's not uh, it's not like a kind of highlight of the scene at that time. It's a, a little kind of too straightforward. But what's quite interesting with Therion over these first four albums, all the way through to 1995's uh, La Paca Cliffhoff, um, is they sort of keep adding bits and pieces of weirdness into their sound. So it started with the first album where they decided to put keyboards on two of the songs, which, again, sounds like nothing now, but... To have keyboards actually mixed into the death metal rather than just, you know, a keyboard intro, then the death metal, in 1991 was relatively revolutionary. And by the time we get to the, the fourth album, uh, La Paca Cliffhoff, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing slightly wrong, but Ferian's fourth album, they're, they're advancing the, the weirdness. And... Uh, we, we can kind of see this with, there's a host of guest musicians on this album. Um, like, well, I say host. There's three guest vocalists who are proper, um, the kind of um, operatic singers. We have like a bass, baritone, soprano, and then, then one person just credited with additional vocals. And mixing with what is at its core, kind of a quite sort of melodic, but still, you know, traditional death metal album is some very strange ideas. Um, so, at this point in time, uh, the band is being led by Christopher doing vocals, guitar, uh, and keyboards, and then joined by bass player Frederick Iskerson, who has um, got quite a kind of uh, interesting career. Like, he worked with Grave in the... Uh, who go on to work with Grave. He was only in, in Ferrum very briefly, and is now in um, Berserker Legion, who... An album came out last year. It was quite popular, uh, and then drummer uh, uh, Preiter, who who was also who was in Therion for like a lot of their early career, would go on to be on the the next album, the transitional one we we're going to talk about. But also was in the incredibly strange band Carbonized with Christopher. So the two of them on the side of doing something a bit more straightforward initially with Therion, they were also doing Carbonized, which is an incredibly out there kind of um, death metal project, kind of more um, contemporary to something like Pamphimonium. So, Ferion's evolution was kind of separate to that. Like, where they were going super weird, Ferion were just adding little elements that slightly changed stuff up. So, they, their music got less and less kind of extreme as time went on. Though This is not the heaviest of, like, death metal for, for the mid-90s. 
Um, but it's very well constructed. It's very well crafted. Like really great riffing, but it's not really brutal riffing. It's more kind of catchy and melodic a lot of times. And with this album, things take a very odd turn quite quickly, actually. We by um by track like the first two tracks, more or less kind of what you'd be expecting. But then on track three, um, Arrival of the Darkest Queen, we've got like a minute long instrumental, which is very classical inspired, and then. The Beauty in Black is like this. It starts like an amazing instrumental, like really kind of cool lead-driven stuff, and then all those those aforementioned vocalists come in, featuring amazingly um, Claudia, who was one of the guest vocalists on Into the Pandemonium we mentioned earlier. Um, there's even a Celtic Frost cover of Sorrows of the Moon on on this album. So clearly, there is a a link between where Therion were going to go and what Celtic Frost were doing very much paving the path. I think um, Christopher's even credited into the pandemonium as an influence for including some of this operatic and um, orchestral elements into their sound. But this sound this I really enjoy. So something that Therion are about to totally lose is his vocals on this are this really cool kind of like halfway between clean and screamed like he's got a very um a very understandable growl with a lot of kind of melodic quality to it and he is fully singing in places on this as well but you know few and far between there's like 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 the odd chorus where that sort of comes in and it's a really kind of interesting element but overall it's got just a great tone to it and it's totally not what you would expect from this era like i think the early stuff was recorded at um at Sunlight Studios, but uh, like these later albums weren't actually the guy uh, who did like the mixing and engineering is Harris Johns, who did a lot of those classic Sodom and Tankard albums. So it's got more of like a kind of chunky thrash production rather than that like sort of HM2 sort of buzzsaw, really raw sound. A lot of their equivalents would um, would be doing. Another interesting element of this album, we start to see like something that'd be quite a common thing in this band sound going forward. In tracks like Trat Two, uh, Melez has these really like, for want of a better phrase, like Egyptian sounding melodies. That kind of, you know, those kind of melodies stuff like Nile has, but you know, the much more cheesy equivalent of that, I guess. Um, and this would sort of continue in their sound even as they moved like very far away from the sort of death metal. Uh, stylings and then uh, later in the albums we get some fantastic keyboards added into stuff i believe it's um darkness eve where there's like this amazing kind of like showy classical piano bit over um over some of the more heavy riffing and like they're really melding that stuff in a great way on this album and, and actually even the the kind of those operatic vocals don't feel totally out of place on this they 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 sort of work with the sound quite well um i i I think possibly because as i say it's not extremely heavy it's just very much rooted in death metal it's still i wouldn't say this is crossed into being melodic death metal like at that point but i guess it's hard to say the only real downside to this album is i think like the final track evocation of vovin goes a bit like folk metally halfway through which just wasn't really for me, and like we kind of left it on a bit of a a bit of a weak note. But overall, I mean, that's still like an excellent thirty-five minutes in the lead up to that, and I, I think it's just a really well captured thing. Like the sound of it's absolutely incredible. I mean, obviously by nineteen ninety-five, 
studios well and truly had a handle on making uh, death metal records sound interesting. And I think for this sort of pushing towards the end of traditional death metal as an era, this was this is a very interesting sort of landmark in that sound. Felly, uh, their first album for Nuclear Blast, and what's uh, symbolised like the huge change in this band's sound. So the story goes, and I obviously don't know quite how true this is and how kind of mythologised it is afterwards. Of uh, Christopher felt that um, the band wasn't kind of getting the push he was expecting. They kind of had got got the feeling that the sort of bubble was bursting on death metal, which in many ways is kind of true, and went into studio with this one expecting it to be the band's final album. So he just put everything into it. He went as far as he possibly could. He pulled all the strings he could to get the most money possible for the studio budget and, and attempted something so ludicrously ambitious for the time. Like As we said with the previous album, there's a lot of odd elements on it, and um, this comes up in the book Mean Deviation. Uh, like He's sort of quoting it, he's sort of saying like a lot of the ideas he had were very progressive for the time, but now if you look at, say, bands like Opeth, like, that obviously makes that, that kind of... It looked extremely tame, but at the time they were pushing boundaries, and Feli was about to push boundaries to such an extreme um so the lineups change ever so slightly we have uh lars rosenberg joining him on bass who previously played with him in um uh, in carbonized uh, and also most notably he's on in tombs classic clandestine and wolverine blues so you know 
the guy is certainly with, with a bit of a cool history to him. And then um, the lineup being rounding up by Jonas Melberg of of Unanimated on second guitar. So with this album, the huge change is Christopher's taking a massive backseat in terms of vocals. He only appears vocally on three songs of this. And the vocals are handled by about 12 guest musicians adding all sorts of different voices where we had three adding to that track on the previous album here we have like multiple bass singers multiple sopranos altos tenors everything then another guy jan peter genkel um joining in to do grand piano keyboards and programming so like christopher's not taking on all those duties himself while certainly doing a lot of um a lot of keyboard work he is also like training off like a lot of his keyboards and guitars to other members other members of the band um or not band like other guest musicians to kind of fill out this huge sound and here is the change like they they are no longer a death metal band on this album the the vocals are primarily clean and operatic this is this massive um operatic metal epic at a time when like that kind of operatic metal sound which again kind of more ubiquitous now um probably wasn't such a thing there's a sort of huge classical influence on this album um the intro track uh preludium uh it was like two minutes leading into the first song to megatherion the kind of essentially the band's like you know like naming themselves track like this, this is meant to be a big deal and like that intro is this fantastically constructed build-up that leads perfectly into the start of to megatherion but when this song comes in, it is just high-pitched operatic vocals in your face straight away. Like, you, I think you're going to get a sense of whether you're going to have any time for this album from the opening two minutes of this. I remember um, uh, Mark from Working With Metal Podcast talking about getting this track on a compilation, just thinking it's the worst thing he, he'd ever heard. But for me, I, I automatically fell in love with this. Like, it's still got some, like, sort of death metal-y riffing in the background, but layered over it all these beautiful like operatic melodies and the song structures are getting immensely complex what's quite interesting though with Therion with all this kind of stuff is they're not that tight as a band like this isn't this isn't like kind of one of your modern symphonic metal things that are just these you know perfectly produced really kind of you know tweaks to the amp degree this is kind of still rough and ready so in terms of lead guitar, uh, there's loads of these um, very classical-inspired solos. Um, Tomegatherion has an amazing one at the end that's trading back and forth between it and the keyboards. But the thing with all the solos on this album is that they're kind of messy. They're kind of over-ambitious and don't quite... Like, don't quite land perfectly. That's sort of the charm of them. There's a there's kind of a rawness to this album, which is is quite surprising. Like, it's it's not polished, but it is like full of classical bombast. Things take a different turn as it progresses. You do get kind of moments of like slower stuff, like Cult of Shadows, as I say, really leans on those kind of like egyptian type melodies uh we mentioned before then we have track four in the desert of set just take that to the next level when this one gets quite intense actually um there's these amazing moments in it where it was quite heavy riffing but then this like um 
interesting, like, like quite intense, like, uh, acoustic guitar melody that's kind of put through a load of uh, different effects over the top of it. And the operatic vocals in this are used as a backing where um, Christopher is taking kind of more of the lead, giving a like, slight harshness to his voice in it. So sort of slightly moving away from the kind of real classical bombast of some of the earlier tracks. But then, say, we have Nightside in Eden, which is like the big catchy one of the album. Like, and a lot of moments at this point which are just sort of combining all these elements brilliantly of taking some death metal riffing, taking some neoclassical stuff, uh, and melding it into this really, really brilliant whole. Um, again, like, much like the previous album, doesn't finish that strongly, is my, my only kind of issue. The the epic 10-minute sort of closer, Siren in the Woods, um, it's just a bit overly long, like, although they do bring it back strong with the, the instrumental grand finale postludium is just this brilliant sort of lead guitar driven, like four minute, like thing, which is just full of excellent riffs, excellent bits of lead. Um, yeah, just real. I guess that, I guess it does close quite strongly. Actually, it's just having like, it's quite a long album, having a massively long 10 minute song that sort of takes a while to get going and doesn't quite hit the heights of the other moments it is a slight letdown i have mentioned as well there's a load of kind of instrumental interludes more again leaning into that heavy sort of classical sound although um not not to quite to the same extent um there, there's no classical instruments on this so as much as taking a huge influence say from those classical leanings on uh, celtic frost into the pandemonium it doesn't have that same level of um, of like actually getting a classical string section in. Probably because, as I say, they were stretching the budget as far as it would go, and those those twelve or so vocalists probably cost enough in in itself. Um, what's quite interesting actually is um, one of the guest vocalists is Dan Swano, who um, adds some really cool stuff to a few of the songs. Like particularly, if you get the version I've got, which I think if you buy it now is is the one you're most likely to pick up they have a sort of second album that comes out um directly after this uh which is mostly a covers album and like but it starts with two originals in the form of um in remembrance and black fairy and in remembrance is mainly dan swano doing vocals and it's one of the coolest vocal performances i've heard from him where he does all these different styles for it all clean stuff but going through his very low right to like the height of his range so yeah like i don't know quite what the relationship was between these bands like dan swano isn't the guy um recording Felly. he's just just a friend of the band like adding guest vocals and yeah his sort of performance on this is is absolutely brilliant um and like yeah the little lines he adds gives some more like kind of heavy metal like uh tendencies to the vocals to to break up this from just being a purely operatic metal album. And what I like about Felly, and I think why it appeals to me so much, is because unlike a lot of operatic metal, which you can probably imagine if you listen to the podcast for a while, it's not something I really talk about, I don't have a huge interest, is this maintains a level of heaviness I don't think a lot of bands in this genre, genre keep. And personally, I really love it. As I say, I think this is the point where um, many of you will disagree. I think there'll be plenty of listeners who who are into one side of Therion and not the other. What's amazing, though, so talking to the story of this, uh, how this was the the make-or-break uh, album for the band, um, it, they put everything into it, expecting it to be their last. It f- 
wasn't their last, like, far from it. This, uh, at the time, sold really well for Nuclear Blast. Um, it's, like, it, it, and the band have gone on to be, like, one of Nuclear Blast's, like, really big sellers for many years to come. So, if you're not too familiar with them, they've put out about eight albums since, um, with varying degrees of success. I particularly enjoyed 2007's Gothic Kabbalah, which... And most of these follow-up albums are following on the same direction. Uh, Gothic Cavalier is, is again, you know, multiple vaguely operatic vocalists interspersed with, like, more kind of heavy metal vocalists over this quite kind of heavy but symphonic metal. Um, and, you know, they, they, they've done extremely well off the sound and, you know, were one of those flagship bands for Nuclear Blast early on. Uh, which is kind of incredible, actually, if you take a look at the album, because it has what has to be one of the all-time worst album covers. Like, 1996, so CGI is is a thing used in, a, in kind of, that kind of computer-animated covers is a thing that's starting to become popular and is nearly universally dreadful, but this is high up on the list of how dreadful it is. If you don't know the cover, look up Ferion's Felly, because... It is an absolute abomination. But I imagine they had to stick with it just because of the extent to which they had blown the budget. Uh, Ferran have always been a band who are a bit back and forth on album covers. Like, of Darkness to Debut is kind of terrible, but the three follow-ups to that are all really good covers. So, you know, sometimes you get it right, sometimes it's a bit of a mess. Uh, <laughs> so if you are someone who's written this band off as being operatic metal, which is something you, you're not into... I advise giving them a go. There's a lot more to this sound than you might expect. And actually, there's a lot of influence, um, I think, taken from uh, by other bands from this that are far more extreme than Fairy uh, on themselves. Like, there's a couple of moments on this. I think um, it's in the track Cult of Shadows, there is a guitar section that sounds like the spitting image of later uh, Celtic Frost, uh, later Septic Flesh. Like, and there's a lot of that kind of where Septic Flesh go very symphonic in a lot of their later material while still, you know, obviously having a very strong death metal edge. I can hear a lot of that in Ferion. No idea if that did play an influence on um, on Septic Flesh or if they just went through similar schools of kind of education on how to write classical music so those elements sort of reappear. But yeah, I think Ferion are definitely a band who sort of took that classical influence Celtic Frost were using and by incorporating into that sound, kind of created, a, like, like started the template that, you know, would form a whole subgenre. Now, maybe, I, 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 not maybe, I don't know my ground on this, like, there's probably a lot of other bands that played into this, but this has got to be a fairly early example of that real neoclassical kind of sound appearing in something with its roots in death metal. As we await the dream of fire.
So as we just referenced them, I think the logical band to do next, and continuation on that kind of classical theme, is Septic Flesh. So Septic Flesh, band have been around for a very long time, uh, started out in 1990, um, from Greece, Athens, um, and they're a band who have been interesting for most of their career. Like uh, their very early releases, like Mystical Places of Dawn, are these fantastically epic, um, sort of, but in in many ways simplistic and a kind of like not particularly technical death metal. The core of the band has been the same uh, for a very long time. Uh, Spiritus uh, Antino on bass and vocals, and his younger brother Christos on guitar and keyboards and orchestration going forward, and then guitarist and clean vocalist uh, Sotoris Vianas. They've had a bit of a revolving door in terms of lineup uh, with drummers, like uh, a lot of different ones over the years. But the the kind of period in their their history I really want to talk about is the move between the two albums, Sumerian Demons and Communi Communion in 2000, sort of between 2003 and 2008. There's, there's kind of an interesting thing with the band. They, early on, as I say, they, they had like a kind of impressive like epicness to their relatively straightforward uh, death metal sound. Then things took a very odd turn on A Fallen Temple in 1998, where they really massively started experimenting with including a classical influence. Again, in a similar way to, say, the Therion, who we referenced earlier, just by adding in a couple of um, classical voices to their sound, which I think they have great success with on a track like The Eldest Cosmonaut, and much less success with on songs like Underworld, Act uh, 1 and 2. So while this is happening, uh, guitarist uh, Christos uh, studied at the London College of Music, uh, got very qualified in classical music. And that sound sort of takes a moment to seep into the band, actually. Because with 1999's Revolution DNA, the band take a very odd turn and sort of gets quite um, quite kind of goth-rocky. Um, Christos has a, a separate project called Chaos Star, which is primarily goth rock stuff and that influence seemed to seep into revolution dna and it's an album i always felt was a bit of a letdown but then we get the kind of ridiculously to the point um follow-up of sumerian demons which is the most kind of to the point death metal they've ever been so it's still got a lot of keyboards and samples in the sound but there's barely any clean vocals on it only kind of one or two added in certain points for like kind of dramatic effect in the background. Like there's a lot of um, kind of interesting interludes and, and sort of build-ups between songs, but primarily this is quite a straight-ahead um, death metal album with a subtle kind of classical influence, I guess, on tracks like Faust who sort of shows through. But primarily, kind of vocally, we're getting it all led by... They do these really heavily affected vocals of uh, Spiros. He does a, a lot of layering and uh, like added distortion and stuff to his voice. So he's got quite a kind of ethereal howl going on on this album. And then we have like those kind of elements of like slight classical things added on top. But primarily, it's just a big riffy death metal album. Like particularly, say the the opener to the it's, um, well off the intro track, the the opener Unbeliever. He's this really kind of intensing with these uh little samples peppered in from the i believe the first evil dead movie talking 
uh, bringing you by reference to the Book of the Dead. It's a cool album. I feel it's sort of dated somewhat. And there's, there's a bit of an issue with um, with the band's sound at this point where because of what was to come, some of these older albums look a bit kind of tame by comparison. I would still say stuff like Mystical Places of Dawn, Amphibian uh, Wheel are well worth going back to. Even A Fallen Temple, despite it having kind of a... Uh, a somewhat messy uh, sort of uh, all over the place vibe to it. They're really interesting, but the two before this massive change don't hold up quite as well as as like their latest material would. So the huge change that comes in is finally uh, Christos starts incorporating his classical influence. So five years after um, Sumerian Demons, we get Communion, and the the huge thing with Communion is there is now a full classical symphony orchestra backing these quite kind of straightforward, um, simplistic, heavy and very riffy death metal songs. So yeah, the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra are brought in and this is the huge change and this is where Septic Flesh will completely morph from what they previously were into this band who, you know, at the time, 2008, I always saw as the death metal equivalent of something like Dimmy Borgia where there's, um, there's like, huge orchestral stuff over the top of their their core of death metal riffing and then interspersed for a lot of the choruses we get these kind of massive clean vocal hooks of um of guitarists uh soterists um yeah, adding in catchy clean choruses every couple of tracks much like ics vortex did with uh Jimmy Borger. um and and the album is just spectacular. I, I was totally blown away by it when it came out. I, I wasn't familiar with Septic Flesh until till the release of this album, but it just every track on it is is really catchy and masterful. The band have gone on to expand this sound more and more, but I think between these two albums there was such a kind of massive tonal shift. And I think a lot of that came from being actually able to include the huge uh, like symphony orchestra in the background of their tracks. There's so many songs that are kind of like sort of live staples of the band now, like Anubis, which features some of those great clean vocals I mentioned, Communion, which has like this huge kind of classical bombast behind it. And then like we have tracks like later in the album, which don't overtly use the kind of... Um, the orchestra as much like they sort of turn it off and on and like unlike something like flesh god apocalypse is like kind of later material where the orchestra is the whole way through every song it comes in and out and stuff so tracks like uh narcissist or sunlight moonlight don't have quite so much of it but then persepolis the the kind of six minute epic has a whole break in the middle of the song which is almost like a minute and a half long of just this amazingly composed kind of classical piece that occasionally comes in with the heavy guitars and drums the, as i say the kind of the death metal portion of this is very simplistic but these just like big groovy riffs and what's interesting as well the massive change in vocal approach from uh from seth the vocalist where previous album we have as these multiple layered heavily affected screams on this Voice is very straightforward, very clear. Lyrics are really kind of clearly projected. Um, and that sort of just fits the sound so much more. Like a track towards the end, something like Sangreal, where we we kind of hear the trade-off between him and the clean vocalist. 
both of them, like their vocal lines are a huge part of the catchiness of this. And with like the classical symphony in the background, which everything's amped up to make this incredible sound. Uh, and the other thing about this is it's a really tight album. It's only 38 minutes long, like nine tracks, none of them. Even the one that has a break of two minutes for a classical piece in kind of in the center of it, still quite a short song. And I think that's that's kind of the genius of this album. They've kept things extremely ambitious while very condensed. Like they don't dwell on their ideas for too long. They kind of quite quickly deliver them. And actually, despite the kind of complexity of the classical uh composition Christoph's done this most of the songs on communion are like quite straightforward like verse chorus structures outside of how complex maybe if you look at the full arrangement of anything going on in a given verse like yes yeah, about four songs on this definitely fit that like pretty to the point like verse chorus kind of structure the the tone of the album's fantastic as well like the guitars have this huge kind of heft to them uh, the drums like sit really well on this mix and say like versus as i mentioned flesh god apocalypse are an obvious comparison because the drums aren't that kind of like hyper blast throughout there you know there's double kick work and stuff but it's never too over the top um the mix doesn't have that thing flesh god apocalypse mixes have where it's just you know completely overwhelming this is quite kind of digestible and it's an extremely accessible albums in many ways despite being kind of so heavy like seth's vocal delivery is while clear it's still a very intense death metal delivery but i think for some people this communion could certainly be like considered almost entry-level death metal because it has so many melodic hooks throughout it and yeah those you know occasional but great melodic clean choruses like the um, Sotoris has this really kind of brilliant sort of mid-range clean vocal. Like, uh, yeah, I really enjoy his clean singing on this. He's not the most, like, uh, the most proficient clean singer going, especially compared against, like, say, some of the incredible vocalists they've had guests with the band over time. But he uh, he does have, like, a, a, real, um, a real great sense of uh, melody to him. Interestingly as well, the album sounds so spectacularly different to the predecessor. Both are recorded by Frederick Nordstrom, like and and both like he's he sort of captured well. They just they sound kind of completely alien to each other. Like uh Sumerian Demons, I just it's hard to believe it's the same band. And particularly if you look back through that catalogue, like it's only stuff like Fallen Temple that kind of nods towards where communion would um would be with this stuff they've also sort of taken an interesting change in direction with the covers so the the version of the cover i have for it is this um like dissected uh like pharaoh type image which which looks really interesting whereas before they they went through this very strange phase of doing a lot of album covers that were kind of real people with like a load of um after effects put on their body so often like you know, giving them strange tattoos and, like, photo editing. It's sort of, like, the idea is interesting, but I don't think it ever quite worked, whereas they're, they're kind of, the change in, like, the visual aesthetic of the band um, definitely played into their sort of, their popularity, um, and I, I think the way they sort of blew up, like, having these better album covers, going for that ridiculous kind of over-the-top aesthetic the, the band members now have of, like, 
these amazing, like, bespoke, crafted leather outfits with, like, say, Seth wearing his his kind of um, muscular suit that looks kind of like uh, the, <laughs> the the one Gary Oldman wears in Bram Stoker's Dracula. And they all have, like, kind of spectacular hair and looks like their Christoph is kind of four foot long dreads like they 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 were a band with you know a very appealing image like as i say much begging that uh demi Borger comparison like another band whose like aesthetic is kind of large on life but as with both bands i do feel they have an issue sort of live of because so much of the sound is dependent on having this orchestra in the background seeing them live i felt so much was on the backing track particularly with um Satoris like not touring with him, so even the clean vocals are on the backing track. Like I've always found them a bit of a disappointing live act. But on studio album, absolutely incredible. And following communion, I've spoken about this before, but they go from strength to strength to the great mass and titan. Um having some amazing compositions on them, pushing like with each album pushing the kind of orchestral element to the next level and kind of getting more and more complex because communion is a very simplistic album in a lot of ways. Like it, I think it's taken them time to work out how to make the the kind of guitaring and that side of things more in more impressive as they go. Actually, one thing I want to mention because I think it's quite interesting is with Crystals being this incredibly accomplished musician, it's kind of amazing that he never really shows off in guitar terms. There's like there's two solos on this album, and one of them is a guest spot, and the final track Narcissus has this like quite nice but not particularly flashy bit of lead guitar and just you'd think with someone with that kind of level of music training there would be i don't know more interest in in showing off his virtuoso chops but he, he keeps things keeps things very nice and simple yeah i think communion is still holds up as an absolutely brilliant record but it must be seen as quite a landmark thing for death metal in 2008 like doing something this kind of classically influenced in the genre, very different take on it to say what we we saw with Therion, like because this is still so firmly a death metal album before it is anything else, and I I really think this this change in direction for the band caused a lot of trends that were to follow.
I realize I've been going on a bit too long with some of these, but unfortunately some of those albums are just so landmark, I, <laughs> I really wanted to talk about them at length. So another band I think uh, that kind of certainly have some crossover if taking things in a different direction to particularly um, Ferion, born out of the early Swedish scene. We spoke about them recently on one of the Death Metal Hidden Gems episode. This is Tiamat, who started life in... 1988 as Treblinka and then changed their name for quite good reason a year later. After putting out some fantastically raw death metal demos under that name, they put out a debut in 1990, Sumerian Cry, which is is an interesting death metal album. Like The band's been led throughout by Joe and Enlund, but there will be quite a lot of lineup changes over these initial releases. And they do a very simplistic form of death metal with a huge amount of atmosphere, kind of like those early septic flesh arms in a way, but with even more odd kind of departures. There'll be moments that they'll throw into quite kind of, you know, Sumerian Cry has quite a few things, this great like, atmospheric death metal, and then moments where they just go incredibly blues rock briefly, or throw in some like unexpected keyboard stuff, which again, 1990, very early on to be doing this. Um, I think a real high point for this sound is their second album, 1991's The Astral Sleep, which um, which features more kind of odd, like, interlude-type tracks, like, more use of keyboards and that, and culminating in, like, the absolutely incredible uh, Ancient Entity, which is one of my, like, kind of favourite songs from this era of, of, of Swedish death metal, like, that kind of early sound. Like, it was a really interesting progressive track with um, amazing use of keyboards over the top of it. But, you know, with the Astral Sleep, they're still sitting firmly in that death metal vein, although not kind of as buzzsawry as some of their um, some of their counterparts. Being a band that were kind of getting to a level of quality quite early on, like they have picked up a Century Media Records, who obviously now a massive label, but I think kind of smaller at the time, and have basically remained with them throughout their entire careers. I was sure, no, they apparently have moved to Napalm Records more recently, but like a lot of their early releases were with Century Media. Now the band, like, this is meant to be transitions between two albums, but there's kind of like a sort of half transition in between this early sound and the album I want to talk about. So next year they put out Clouds, and Clouds is a very popular album, but... It doesn't quite work for me. So I'm going to be mainly talking about the 1994 album Wild Honey, which I, I think is an absolute masterpiece. Clouds kind of sits between this. Clouds still has a foot very firmly in the um, death metal camp, but brings in more and more of these kind of keyboards we were talking about and and kind of like a somewhat goth rock type influence. There's there's a lot of um, a lot of other ideas going on there. But for me... I don't think the melding between those two sounds is perfect. I think, realistically, you'd need to get to um, 1994's Wild Honey to see kind of that culminate. But, certainly, for 1992, Clouds is a very interesting album. I just personally think um, some of those progressions they tried to include have dated somewhat poorly. So, on the in the, the intervening two years... Uh, Jan uh, England loses most of his lineup, manages to keep uh, Johnny Hagel, who uh, played bass on the previous album, with him. So, TMS Wild Honey is an interesting one. It's like a transitional album, but also probably their like best work. It's something that feels like totally unique for the the time period. The closest I can think, which use like the 
world's most obscure example is Neolithic uh, for Destroy Lament, an album I covered in my um, Death Metal Hidden Gems series, like a few few episodes back. But um, even that's got more death metal in it than this. Like this really is a band properly, sh like drastically shifting sound. Like I, I described the sound of this album as something like goth infused atmospheric prog rock like i know i was stringing a lot of adjectives together that is kind of there like there there is progressive elements to this there is like a lot of goth kind of stuff in the sound and also like it, it is overall an album that mainly works on creating like a beautiful atmosphere so as i mentioned most of the lineup's gone at this point uh you england was probably able to pursue this vision to such an extent because he was one of the only two guys that sort of came over and as I said, the bass player only had joined them for clouds at this point. Strictly as well, it's only those two officially in the lineup. Everyone else is credited as a guest. The structure of this album is what really sells it for me. Almost every song in it is preceded by an odd interlude that like flows perfectly into the next track. The transitions on this album are done so well, it's hard to tell kind of where one track ends and another begins. Uh, for example, like the middle bit of the R, there's a long acoustic section with like industrial percussion on it. And it sounds like that's the end of the song or like it's moved into like another track. But then the chorus from earlier on kicks back in. And yeah, you, you realise there's just this, this very strange kind of interlude section in the centre of the song. For something with like such prog leanings, the songwriting is really tight. None of the songs are too self-indulgent. The album's like wraps up at the, before the 45 minute mark. And uh, there's, there's a nice due to it as well where it gets kind of more melodic as the album goes on um starting kind of with some of those death metal elements like there's still kind of scream vocals in whatever hurts and the r but then like we get to song gaia and it's a it's a full-blown ballad do you dream of me almost like forgoes drumming completely let alone like metal drumming throughout this like there is no kind of extreme metal drumming. It's all kind of more rock stuff. And actually, that song with barely any backing on it, um, it's probably a highlight of the album. Uh, beautifully melodic throughout, and then just bursting into this incredibly flashy piece of lead guitar that just, just works perfectly. The album's kind of drenched in keyboards, um, but that's not the thing that really makes it goth. I think the goth influence is in the vocals. Like, you're in England doing this kind of um, very kind of low, clean voice throughout, well, I say throughout, like, there's moments of screaming, but, like, he tends to be in that, like, kind of low, clean register through, for, for a lot of the second half, half of the album. And, like, I think where Wild Honey really, really kind of excels is all these elements I've described, you know, all those keyboards and those kind of low, gothy vocals could make an album super cheesy, but I think they get the balance just right, keeping it kind of atmospheric with ever, without ever kind of losing the feeling of being a rock band at the core. These, like, almost everything on this feels like it could be played live. The whole album has, though, this like amazing kind of dreamy, atmospheric quality to it. It's, it's a very, like, slow-paced album with a lot of long, like, long dragged-out kind of synth sections that, um... Yeah, it's, it's, I, I know, it's got a very waking dream quality to it, and I don't know whether this is something the band chose to do consciously, or it's just how it came together, but it really works, and that's kind of capped off by the, the very kind of odd cover, they're the kind of 
orange image of like multiple kind of flowers but with with kind of strange imagery kind of mixed into them it's it's an album cover where especially with the the band logo and the album title wild honey i could not tell you what this was going to be picking up it's it's completely kind of in its own realm on that front certainly wouldn't have thought it would be something you would expect from a band previously so rooted in death metal. So there's things about this um, that haven't aged incredibly. Um, the, like A lot of the clean vocals aren't the most impressive, but I think they totally do the job. And, you know, he's someone who's grown as a vocalist over time. Some of the lyrics, like uh, the final track, Pocket Size Sun, are just silly. Like, they, they are really silly, but the way the album's mixed they don't kind of catch your attention so much. Like, I, I never find myself really focusing on the on the kind of lyrical matter. Whereas opposed to saying like Septic Flesh, like, I've always found Septic Flesh, I often hone in on the lyrics and certain lines will catch me. And it's a big disappointment with that band for me because odd lines of their lyrics sound really interesting, but actually when you analyse them, like, they're not saying all that much. Whereas Wild Honey never, the lyrics were never the thing that grabbed me about it. It's so much based on atmosphere I, I i didn't need that element it's it's an interesting thing as well with this band i've not heard everything they've done since uh since wild honey but i've never been so into um many of the albums that will follow this uh they 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 sort of like struck gold with this album they've never quite been able to repeat that magic again much like i was saying with fairy on this does feel like a, an album that was quite ahead of its time sort of combining these influences like i'm sure there's certainly other bands doing it but um tiamat seemed very early on with what they were doing with, with wild honey and like they're one of those rare transitions where a death metal band went for a like realistically a way way more commercially acceptable sound like something that's far more kind of marketable to like a more mainstream audience but it didn't suck. It didn't feel like a sellout. It felt like quite a kind of brave choice in a lot of ways. Um, like just completely kind of um, a sound that was kind of completely alien to their audience at the time. Like I, I can't imagine what people who had kind of been into Clouds and the Astral Sleep thought when they picked up this album. I imagine they lot lost a lot of fans doing it because it is so drastic a change. Like as I say, with Clouds, there's still very clearly a death metal influence in there. We with Wild Honey, the the like the guitars aren't that distorted or detuned. The the drumming, as I said, is straight up rock drumming. And while there are some screams in this, they are the only thing that really anchors this in truly being like a kind of metal album. All that being said, though, this was one of the first breakout successes for Century Media. This this album really like helped put the label on the map and was one of their uh, like early like really high sellers so they, they they were doing something right but as i say like they just seemed to almost kind of completely randomly strike gold with this or not completely randomly that's that's kind of unfair but it it just seems to be something the band had never recreated to quite the same level following it I wish that i could break into your dreams do i have the Dream of 
so I think I'll sort of wrap the episode up here. Like, I quite like these transitional albums as a, as a theme for episodes, and I've got... I'm probably going to record another one straight off the back of this one. But yeah, get in touch if you've got any examples of really good transitions, particularly where, like, um, bands have gone from a sound that was really good and kind of well-developed and moving to something kind of quite new for them and being totally successful. I think that's a really interesting idea. Something that's sort of come up doing the research this or looking for good examples of bands to cover in this is I found very few examples where a band has gone from a lighter, more accessible sound to fun something far more kind of heavy and intense successfully like this, where the, the transition always seems to lean more towards bands mellowing out than transitioning heavier. It's it's kind of an interesting, but yeah, if you can think of any good examples like that, definitely hit me up. So before I close things out, I want to do a quick nepotism corner. This album came out a couple of weeks back, end of April. This is Franklin Mint with their second album, Bristle. So we covered these guys uh, briefly on our sort of scene report a couple of years back. And they've they've always been one of the more interesting local acts. I've not managed to see them live for a while for, for obvious reasons. But it's really great to see they've been working on stuff behind the scenes. So if you've not heard that episode and you're not familiar with the band, like they have a very interesting sound. Like They've sort of <laughs> tagged their influences like post-punk, post-rock. And I've seen them describe themselves as like, a slanted take on rock and that's all kind of there they're a very hard band to categorize like they they just do really interesting out there rock like the the thing that's really really kind of striking about them straight away is the vocal approach and and the lyrics like they're a band where like the lyrics always feel like very front and center this very kind of um odd poetry all the songs have it puts like best puts me in mind to say something like the earls of mars where each song has like a brilliant like slightly odd often slightly metaphorical story worth unpicking around it and, and the vocal delivery is is extremely interesting as well again i think like some of the bands we mentioned earlier they 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 might be something where i think you could tell whether you're going to have time for this or not straight away like they they have a very immediate sound something i really like about them actually is because they are a four piece with dedicated vocalist um a guitarist who also i think partially plays keyboards and bass player and drums is the bass player has this huge part in the mix like the bass player and drummer sort of set these like fantastic grooves for their songs whereas the guitarist will often like get a bit more experimental so the bass always has a great kind of massive place in the mix and like is leading those kind of those really great riffs they have whereas the guitarists will get a bit more experimental and descended to some sort of odder territories like often utilizing some cool effects and um, actually the bass as well gets involved in that there's a lot of like interesting use of effects throughout this album just to just to keep the sound super varied their songs are uh, really to the point like so while I'd say their music is progressive in the kind of true sense of the word, like this, you know, experimental stuff taking influence in a lot of genres, their stuff isn't like hyper complex or anything like that, or, or particularly technical. It's just very adventurous. Like, and I think coupled with the the kind of that brilliantly unique vocal delivery, there there's something that kind of verges on avant garde. Like there there's 
possibly it's, it's me being out of my depth on this and there is um there is more bands who sound like this but but from my point of view i i, I found this to be an incredibly odd and inventive album and which really built nicely on their their like 2018 debut what i like about these guys is despite really not sitting in a vein of being remotely metal i've always experienced them turning up on mainly more metallic bills like they, they played in uh, in metal to the masses um and i've seen them in venues like alongside sort of death metal acts and that and it's interesting because i i'd firmly say they're they're a rock band but they do have moments of like quite headbangable riffs like these these they get heavy in places other other moments they're, they're like sort of incredibly melodic particularly the the times where they lean more into the keyboard than the guitar but they they fit well on a metal bill and i, I think again they're a band who are led a touch of uh, extremity just by virtue of being very experimental and very interesting now i've only got the album recently so i haven't really had time to like fully digest it but first couple of listens i am so far really into it i think the thing i want to have more time with though is is that like the the poetry of the lyrics like there there is so much kind of fun stuff to unpick like they they have an amazing sense of humor to them there's a lot of songs that like sort of immediately grab me with quite funny kind of allegories and stuff in the lines but I, I think there's a lot more to understand about this band and I'd highly advise if you if you want to hear some very out there kind of post-rock post-punk kind of stuff they are really worthy of your time so yeah that's franklin mint with a second album bristle hope you enjoyed this episode as i say like get in touch if you've got good suggestions for uh transitional albums you can contact us at philsbreakfastmetal at gmail.com at breakfastmetal on twitter and also on like instagram and facebook if you just search for phil's breakfast metal you should be able to find us also i've seen like a few reviews have popped up on uh various platforms recently thanks a lot for those like who have left those it it means a lot hearing feedback like that yeah so thanks a lot for listening welcome all welcome one and all this is the greatest show ever sold step right up with your golden ticket to the greatest Here they are, we're proud to present to